How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm pleased to continue my conversation with Edward J. Larson, a professor of history and the Hugh and Hazel Darling Chair in Law at Pepperdine University, and the author of American Inheritance, Liberty and Slavery in the Birth of a Nation, 1765-1795. Thank you very much, Dr. Larson, for being with us for the second part of this conversation. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to pick it up with the end of the Revolutionary War. Obviously, um, the final American victory is at Yorktown, but why did it take two years from the victory in Yorktown, 1781, to actually complete the Treaty of Paris in 1783? Why was it such a long, drawn-out negotiation? Well, the Battle of Yorktown, or the Siege of Yorktown, uh, the American victory there, did not end the British involvement in the United States. Uh, The British still had a larger army based in New York City. They still controlled Savannah. They still controlled Charleston. They still controlled the entire frontier, all the Ohio country, as it were. Then they could have tried again. They lost one army in sort of a fluke operation. It was really only their second major defeat, that in Saratoga. But the British had, you know, tired on the war. Local support ended. Um, It seemed that it was just going to be an endless guerrilla warfare that just continued. George III did not want to oversee the collapse of his empire. And it took a long time to convince him to agree to have a peace. And so it just drug on and on and on. And Franklin was involved trying to negotiate. He was then the ambassador in Paris, and he was working with others in England who wanted this to end. And it just took a while to convince things. Also, communications just took a long time. So everything was slowed by ships having to go back and forth and messages passing. Did the treaty deal with the slavery issue at all? Initially, no, nothing. As the treaty was originally negotiated with Franklin, basically Franklin had settled everything initially. And then John Adams and John Jay showed up. And even then, it still didn't deal with slavery. But at the very last minute, Henry Lawrence, who was a major slave owner and slave trader and slave importer from Charleston, and the lead British negotiator was a fellow named Richard Oswald, who was a major investor in the Bunch Island slave base in Africa and was involved in the slave trade. And he was a negotiator. He had long ties with Americans. And so Lawrence comes in at the last minute and asked for an addition to the already negotiated treaty. And it just floored, you can see it in their letters, it floored Franklin and Adams and Jay that 
Oswald, as if he'd had a prior understanding, immediately agreed. And it was it was in, even written in by hand it's on the margins to add it to um, Article 7 um, that prohibited the carrying of any Negroes or other property of the American inhabitants. That is the carrying away by the British when they left of any of the, quote, any Negroes or other property of American inhabitants. What happened to the slaves who had joined the British military effort uh, being promised, if they did so, that they would be freed? Uh, did they actually get their promised freedom? Most of them did, generally. Um, remember, the British had enclaves that they still controlled right up to the end in New York, Savannah, and Charleston. So when the treaty was agreed to, the job became to evacuate peaceably and orderly by ship those three towns. Well, in those three cities, the loyalists had congregated, enormous numbers of loyalists. And remember, I don't know, a quarter of American were loyalists. A lot of them, especially those with money, had moved to those three cities. They had brought with them their own enslaved people, but also a lot of the freed Blacks, freed because they served in the British military or with the British military, they had all been concentrated in those three cities. So then became the orderly removal by fleets and fleets of ships of those three cities, some going to London, some going to Canada, some going to the Caribbean. And the British insisted on taking all the Blacks with them. Now, George Washington would complain and says, you can't look at the treaty. The treaty says you're prohibited from carrying any Negroes or other property of American inhabitants. But the British responded, they're not their property anymore. They got their freedom when they signed up, when they fled to our British lines, when they joined our troops, like when Cornwallis was marching through Virginia. By the thousands, they fled. Many fled from Jefferson's plantation, from Madison's plantation, from Washington's plantations. They fled to the British lines and they went with them back. And so they said they got their freedom then. So they're no longer the property of American habits. Washington was furious, but the British refused to relent on that matter of principle. Were there slaves who escaped but did not join the British? Did those slaves get returned to Washington or other slave owners? Well, generally so. If they hadn't gone behind British lines, that is, they hadn't joined the forces or they came in late or something like that, if they were captured when the Patriot troops recaptured an area such as New Jersey, yes, generally those got repatriated. Did the slave trade increase after the Treaty of Paris? Yes, it did because so many enslaved people were taken away, either by their loyalist owners or by the British. Remember, the main focus of the war, by the last half of the war, the main battleground was Georgia and the Carolinas. So Clinton went down himself, recaptured those areas. The armies spent a lot of time there. And so those areas had been pretty much depopulated of enslaved people. Many had gone down to English Florida before it became Spanish Florida or the Caribbean as enslaved people. Others as free went up to Nova Scotia or back to England. And the result was that they wanted the white plantation owners, the ones who were patriots or the ones who had taken over the, the loyalist property, 
they wanted to repopulate. So the trade in enslaved people increased dramatically following the war, but now was in American hands rather than British. Let's talk for a moment about the Articles of Confederation. Uh, the colonies during the war were more or less operating under the Articles of Confederation, but after the Treaty of Paris, there was an effort to strengthen them. Uh, why did they want to strengthen the Articles of Confederation, and how did the Articles actually deal with the slavery issue? Well, the problem with the Articles of Confederation is they were truly, by their own terms, they were a league of friendship. It's about like the UN Charter. Um, they didn't have binding authority. They couldn't raise revenue. They had to ask the states to give them money. So they had no money to maintain an army. Uh, they had no money to maintain a defense once the revolution was over. Each state had to deal with their own issues. And there was no trade compact. So every state could put its own trade restrictions on another state, and they did. And the result is there was no free-flowing commerce among the states. There were tariffs among the states. There was no universal coinage. Every state had its own coins. And there was no military. So without a military, and since no states owned much of the frontier, especially the Northwest Territories, the Ohio country, as it were, there was nobody to open the frontier. And the Native Americans were actually pushing back over the course of the years following the a Revolutionary War and before the Constitution, two-thirds of Georgia had been retaken by the Native Americans. All the Ohio country had been retaken by the, the Native Americans. And so there was a sense that we need to have an army, so therefore we need to raise revenue, and we need to have breakdown tariff barriers. We need to have uh, a common market, as it were. Um, and those motivated people like Hamilton, Madison, Washington, Franklin, to thinking, we need a stronger central government. And among those, one that has a power to levy and collect taxes. Well, when you levy and collect taxes, how do you do that? You do it on population or you do it on worth of the value of uh, assets? So how did they resolve that with respect to particularly the slaves? Well, one way you raise it is to impose tariffs on imported goods, but those have disproportionate effects and possibly tariffs on exported goods, that is outside the country. But those have different impacts on Rhode Island versus the South. So the issue of slavery comes up indirectly that way, but more pronounced is if you impose requisitions, binding requisitions on the states, so that the states have to contribute, then you have to figure on what basis. Do you do it on the wealth of those states or do you do it on the population? Well. Slavery comes in two ways there. If you do a population, do you do it total population or do you only do it free population? If you do it wealth, how do you calculate wealth in an area where in the North, the wealth is not tied to slavery and in South, the wealth is primarily tied to slavery? So what was the resolution at the Articles of Confederation? Well, they never succeeded in making a final resolution because back then to make an amendment to the articles that required all 13 states and you could never get all 13 states to agree. But the proposed resolution that made it through Congress and moved to the states was that the requisitions, the level of taxation will be by population with enslaved people counting as three-fifths of a person with the idea being, remember, this is the amount of requisitions the state is going to pay 
in that respect, an enslaved person is not as valuable, is not as wealth generating as a free person, and is worth roughly three-fifths. But that never went into effect since uh, they decided not to impose this kind of taxation. It never went into effect because 13 states didn't prove it. 12 did. Um, it was never going to affect the representation because under the Artists of Confederation, every state had one representative, no matter how many free or enslaved or total population, they all had one. So were northern states beginning to make it easier for slaves to be freed in those states or to live there if they had been freed or escaped from their owners in southern states? Absolutely. There was a strong abolitionist movement in the north um, that arose with the revolution. It had existed before, but it really exploded during the revolution. There was also a big movement to free, not abolish slavery entirely, but to allow owners to free their individual enslaved people. Both of those had gained tremendous force in the North. Some Northern states like Pennsylvania and Massachusetts and New Hampshire, Vermont had abolished slavery altogether. Other um, Northern states had moved to make it easier to free their enslaved people. And then once you had a state like Pennsylvania or Massachusetts or had a large free Black population, it was easier for a escaped or fugitive enslaved person from the South, especially if it was Maryland or Virginia, right near the border, to get away and to cross over. And then because each state was an independent nation, there was no effective way to go back up there and capture them because a Pennsylvania court or a Massachusetts court wouldn't do that because they didn't have slavery in those states. So once you got there, you were free. So the Articles of Confederation are not strengthened, but ultimately George Washington is convinced by Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, among others, that there is a need for a government with more power than the Articles of Confederation have. How did they actually get the Constitutional Convention uh, going? Whose idea was it? Why was it agreed to do it in Philadelphia? And um, did George Washington feel he had to show up? Nobody needed to convince George Washington that a stronger national government was needed. As one of his last acts as the commander-in-chief during the Revolutionary War in 1783, he issued his circular letter to the states, which he sent to all the states pleading with them to get rid of the Articles of Confederation and replace it with a stronger federal union that would have the power over interstate commerce, international commerce, uh, the power to tax and spend for the general welfare, to maintain a national army. He knew that from the beginning. Of course, Alexander Hamilton, who had been his aide during the uh, Revolutionary War, and James Madison, who we became close friends with, they were strongly supportive, as was Benjamin Franklin, who during much of this period was the governor of Pennsylvania. Um, there were many others who realized that for the economy alone, and then for opening the frontier, and all Americans knew that what made America special was the frontier. They wanted to move west. They wanted to um, open the west for development. And they could only do that if they had a national army. They knew they needed stronger uh, effective ability to raise and spend taxes. So there was a widespread movement for a stronger federal union of which Washington was at its effective head. Um, the known head. And it wasn't just in the North. It was the South as well. It was the Pinckneys in South Carolina. It was the people in New England. 
And so they chose Philadelphia probably because it was central. Um, it was a middle state. It wasn't a southern state. It wasn't a northern state. It was a middle state. And Philadelphia had been where the Second Continental Congress had met and the First Continental Congress. So it was a logical, uh, the logical place to hold it. And those that went, went convinced that America needed a stronger central government. So when the Constitutional Convention is held, how is the issue of slavery dealt with and how does it arise? It was a difficult issue for them because here was the host governor who was then head of the largest abolitionist society in America. And you had a major slave owner like George Washington, who was clearly going to be the president of the convention. And the two, those two gentlemen were generally thought at the time and before it began and even after it was over, thought of as the main architects. That was the general perceived wisdom. And yet it was known that they differed over that issue. Also, they knew that the states would have to agree, and they knew that Southern states wouldn't agree to abolish slavery. So as pragmatists, and most of the people who went to Philadelphia, certainly Franklin and Washington were famous pragmatists, most of them agreed that it just had an issue that they had to leave to the states. But if they had said we need to abolish or want to abolish slavery, there would have been no constitution. Is that correct? Oh, it would have never gone through the Southern states. The Southern delegates came to the convention convinced they needed to protect slavery. And there were certainly Northern delegates who wanted to abolish slavery. You know, Franklin was given a petition by his own organization to push for the abolition of slavery. And Franklin realized it just couldn't go through. This wasn't the time to do it. We have to get a stronger central government first. So the total abolition of slavery was an issue that was certainly at issue. But as, as several of the Southern delegates said, and the records in the Madison's note to the Constitution, he says, if anyone's thinking this is going to lead to a abolition of slavery in the South, we're walking out. They better change their mind. That was clearly stated at the convention. So there was going to be uh, slavery permitted, but the slavery uh, arose again in three different issues. Let me go through each of them with you. The first one was representation, bicameral uh, federal legislature, and in the House of Representatives, which was going to be representing the population, the issue arose, do you count whites? Do you count slaves? And how do you deal with that? What was the resolution of that? Well, that issue was front and center from day one. As you may recall, the debate over the Constitution began with the introduction of the Virginia Plan uh, by the governor of Virginia, Edmund Randolph. And the Virginia Plan had actually been drafted by the delegates from Pennsylvania, meeting jointly with the delegates from uh, Virginia while they were waiting for the other delegates to show up. And in that provision, they provide that the lower house, what became the House of Representatives, Oh, and this was an artful bit of drafting. The, the representation would be proportional to the states. That is, every state wouldn't get one. It wouldn't be like the um, Articles of Confederation. And that should be expected because it's being drafted by Pennsylvania and Virginia, two of the most populated states in the union. If they're going to be able to impose tax, then to live up to the idea of no taxation without representation, that's going to have to have popular, popular representation. Um, so how do you do it? And so they put in their original draft, it's either by, they used a euphemism, quotas of contribution or free individuals. They didn't resolve it. 
right from the beginning, the issue was we're either going to be do this by wealth or how much you spend, which would factor in enslaved Africans, or we're going to do this by free people. Well, obviously, the North was pushing for one and the South was pushing for the other. Okay, so uh, ultimately, they come to the same resolution that was discussed in the Articles of Confederation discussion, which is that slaves would count as three-fifths of a white. Right. That's representation purpose. Absolutely correct. And that compromise, it had been developed by the Confederation Congress as an amendment to the Article of Confederation. It had been developed by none other than the Congressman Virginia from James Madison. And so James Madison was, of course, a very prominent member of the Constitutional Convention. So he always had this in mind. It was a well-known compromise. And so while the North is pushing for free individuals, which of course would include free blacks because most of the North had abolished slavery. So they would count free blacks in their numbers. And the South was putting for uh, a quotas of contribution, that is dividing the representation based on wealth. Madison offered the logical compromise and Madison repeatedly during the Constitutional Convention says the real divide here is not between small states and large states. It's between the North and the South. It's between slave states and free states. That's the real divide at this convention. That's the real divide in this union, not small states, large states. So this was the compromise. Now, it's sort of convenient because if you now flip it to a counter of representation, of course, it's the North that doesn't want it. They say, you're not going to let these people vote. Why should they get representation for them? All this will do will further empower the white male voters. That's all it's going to do. Indeed, as Governor Morris from Pennsylvania stressed, it says it'll encourage you to import more enslaved Africans because you'll have more representation in Congress. He made that point. But what using three-fifths does, it makes it so there were roughly the same number of members of Congress from the enslaved states as free states. Because crazily, using three-fifths makes the representation about the same. That's about what you need. And that was really their goal. So a second way in which slavery arose was the fugitive slave uh, clause. Can you explain what that was? The fugitive slave clause is very important to Southerners because once you had free states, if an enslaved person, like later Frederick Douglass, escaped from their owner in Maryland, which was right next to Pennsylvania, there was no way to catch them. So if they are going to have a stronger central government, well, one of the things we want is to be able to go up north and recapture our fugitives from slavery in the South. Because there was a lot of examples where Blacks had fled the South and hadn't been returned. And no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't get them back. Um, there's a great series of letters from the governor of South Carolina to Governor Hancock, who hated slavery, um, in Massachusetts. And Hancock, once they got there, Hancock was not going to send them back. And so they wanted this power. Now, the Fugitive Slave Clause in the Constitution simply authorizes Congress to enact the Fugitive Slaves Law. So how it would actually be done in practice Congress was given the power to enact such a statute and give it teeth. And that's what the first Congress did. A third way that slavery appears in the Constitution is the limit on 
slavery importation. It was, I think, 20 years uh, was was the limit. No more slaves to be imported 20 years from, from the date of their ratification. Why was the 20-year period picked? That was a huge issue. The inclusion of that exemption was the single greatest reason for opposition to the adoption of the Constitution in the North. They could swallow the Three-Fifths Compromise. They could swallow um, the Fugitive Save Clause, but they could not swallow this because if they hated slavery, they really hated the importation. The accounts of the Atlantic slave trade were a, a constant feature of abolitionist literature and of religious literature in the North and in England of this hellish practice of going into Africa, snatching these children from their families, throwing them on slave ships brutally, with many of them dying. So there was an enormous hatred of the Atlantic slave trade. And so when Georgia and the Carolinas, and it was only those three states, demanded as a condition of joining the Union, of agreeing to the Constitution in Philadelphia, it would be a condition of ratification that they, those three states, and only those three states, or any state that asked for it, but only those three states were going to ask for it, the, the continue to import enslaved people through the Atlantic slave trade, rather than shut the door where it is, it ignited a firestorm at the Constitutional Convention because the Northern delegates knew this could be a deal breaker in the North. It could have been the deal breaker in Massachusetts, again, very close to it. Now, why did the South demand on it? Well, it's interesting. Virginia didn't want it. Virginia was opposed to it. Why? Because Virginia had an excess of enslaved uh, Blacks that they had now began basically propagating because they knew the Southern states and the opening territories of the Southwest, which became Alabama and Mississippi and Tennessee, there was enormous need for enslaved people there. And also after the revolution, there was a need for more enslaved people in Georgia, especially Western Georgia and in the Carolinas. So they were happy to close the slave trade because it would increase the value of the enslaved people they already had. The Carolinas and Georgia knew they needed more enslaved people. They wanted them. And so they wanted to keep open. But they figured, and they talked about this, they figured in 20 years, they'd have all they needed, and then they couldn't get money selling their excess enslaved population to Alabama and Mississippi. So it all broke down to economics. And what the part of the Constitution says is not that anybody can import enslaved Africans during this 20-year period. The Congress never had the power to limit international commerce before it. The Constitution gave the Congress total power over interstate and international commerce with this one exception. But it says that if you want to continue to import enslaved people, it has to be on a state-by-state -state basis so that the only people that could permit it would be an individual state, the Carolinas and Georgia. So they could import more enslaved Africans. They could get enough to serve their own purposes and begin exporting them internally onto Alabama and Mississippi. So when the Constitution is completed and ready, we've dealt with the slave issues. How many times is the word slave or slavery in the Constitution? 
It's never used in the Constitution. Why? That's a complicated question. Um, they used euphemisms that everybody knew meant slavery or an enslaved person. I think it was part because they found the term embarrassing and they could get around it. It was also partly because in the North, by that time, that would have been a red flag and made it tougher to um, ratify the Constitution in, in a state like Massachusetts or New Hampshire. Um, some delegates wanted to use it, um, including some Northern delegates who, like Governor Morris, who wanted the South to face up to what they were doing and be bold about it. But others, like Madison, wanted to dodge the issue. And remember, Madison was sort of like a, um, a political nerd. And he was best at the backstage. He was a manipulator. He went along with the Northerners who didn't want to use the term. He thought that would be politically more palatable. When the ratification process occurs, is slavery a major issue in any of the states that ratify? Yes, it's a major issue in many of the states. And it becomes a major rallying cry for anti-federalists. People opposed to ratification. It became one of their main objections. In the North, the anti-federalists were anti-slavery. And one of their main points was the 20-year exemption to allow the continuation of the Atlantic slave trade. And that became a major issue for anti-federalists in the North. And it um, succeeded once in delaying ratification in New Hampshire. Um, it was very effective in Massachusetts. Now, in the South, it was just the opposite. The anti-federalists were pro-slavery. And they rallied around and said, this constitution, this national government, they're going to abolish slavery. And in fact, Patrick Henry famously declared he was the leader of the anti-federalists in Virginia. It was a very close vote. And he famously declared, they'll take your, well, he used the, the N-word. So the slavery issue does not keep the, the Constitution from being ratified. But famously, at the Constitutional Convention, James Madison opposes uh, the effort at the, at the last minute to get a Bill of Rights in the Constitution. But as the ratification process goes forward, uh, Madison recognizes that while there's no requirement that there be a Bill of Rights, he more or less thinks there should be. And so as a member of the first Congress, he drafts a Bill of Rights. Did he think, or there are others who thought who ultimately approved the Bill of Rights, that it was a little bit inconsistent to say we're having a Bill of Rights when you have slaves? Yes. Many Southern anti-federalists anti were using the slavery issue to try to stop ratification. It's a very, very close vote in Virginia. But Madison and the Pinckneys in South Carolina, Randolph in Virginia, they assured Southerners that no, this doesn't undermine slavery at all. And their best evidence was the Fugitive Slave Act, which they say, this acknowledges, this gives more power to us to recapture our slaves. This is the acknowledgement of slavery in the Constitution. So they managed to get, through, get the ratification. But there was a big push among anti-federalists for a Bill of Rights, because the Constitution doesn't include a Bill of Rights. And Madison led the opposition to a Bill of Rights at the Constitutional Convention. But when he's running for Congress from uh, Western Virginia, he is forced to basically lie. He lies and says that he had always wanted a Bill of Rights, which is demonstrably not true in his own 
later accounts of the Constitutional Convention. And instead, he would insist on a Bill of Rights. Uh, so he goes to the first Congress dedicated to getting a Bill of Rights. Jefferson had always wanted a Bill of Rights. He thought any constitution should have a Bill of Rights. Most state constitutions at that time had a Bill of Rights. The Federalists didn't really want one. They claimed you didn't need a Bill of Rights because your government was limited by enumerated powers, and those powers did not include, you know, limiting freedom of speech or something like that. And therefore, you didn't need a Bill of Rights. But Madison came around to thinking he should. And so because the Federalists controlled the first Congress, he ends up leading the effort to get a Bill of Rights. Um, he wrote one. The final one was somewhat like what he wrote. It was much amended in both the House and the Senate. And we ended up with the list. But what we ended up with is a list that really is a protection of states' rights, much more than a protection of individual rights. If you actually read it closely, it says things that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Well, states can still do it. And when it talks about no limits on guns, they say the importance of a state militia. And then, of course, it famously has the, the final amendment protecting the rights of the states directly. So in many ways, this was seen in that in no way did it impact the power of the states to maintain state-sanctioned slavery. Dr. Larson, thank you very much for this conversation. It's a really illuminating conversation about slavery and its uh, growth and impact and how our, our country really dealt with it in the early years. Thank you very much. And thank you for your wonderful questions. It's a pleasure to talk with you again. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.